Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Young Contentables podcast. I am your host, Pete Nill. And today's guest is Danny Rees. So Danny's been on the circuit for a very long time. He's been on it a lot longer than what I have. I've always known Danny to be around on the primarily the World War II circuit. So Danny, how are you, mate? I'm good, thanks. I hope you've been keeping well. Oh, I'm all right. It's all the others, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you keep bashing on. That's the main thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Danny, where did it all start for you on uh, the Living History circuit? I. Uh, it's going back in the mists of time here now, days before the Facebook and all that malarkey, where we had to deal with news uh, newsletters and all sorts. But no, for me, it started in secondary school in about 2000, 2001. I was coerced by another old hand of the reenacting world, uh, Mr. Richard Carson, who may, uh, doubtfully many people have heard of. Oh, not Carson. <laughs> yes. Bring up the Carson. <laughs> yes. Well, he convinced me to come along because we used to sit next together in class, in maths class, and we were always interested more in history than maths, unfortunately. He convinced me to come along to a railway event. I didn't know what they were at the time, but it was the Seven Valley Forties weekend. So I was, I was okay so as, a, as a young lad, came along to Seven Valley, and I was hooked from that point onwards, as it were. Rich was presented, uh, portraying the glider pilot regiment at the time, so I went down the, the unfortunate rabbit warren of portraying the parachute regiment during Arnhem. But from then on, I kind of uh, looked at different things. Oh, well, because I, I, always, I, I always forget that you went to school with Carson. It's, it's quite funny when you think about it, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, we were uh, in uh, Mrs. Lee's maths class and we were reading the uh, illustrated history of World War II. Was it going down too well? <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear! <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. We'd always used to go uh, do our maths, try and get our maths done as quickly as possible, so we could actually just sit and read math history books in the classroom. <laughs> well, that's better than adding, I suppose, isn't it? 
<laughs> oh, so you don't need maths nowadays. You've got a calculator. Oh, that's it. So you don't. So you went to your first event. So what did that? What was your first impressions then? Obviously, you you came into it on the invite of uh, Mr. Carson himself. Um, so what what was your actual first impression? Actually, having a look like when you stood there, going like. Oh, I reckon I could get into this, or was it like, what is going on here? <laughs> I think it's just at, at, at the time it wasn't very much. You know, we didn't have all the social media that we got nowadays, and it was a totally different world to get into. You know, and especially with the steam railways, you'd get there and it'd just be a full-on everything you'd seen. You know, at that time, I'd only just started collecting, and I was seeing things I'd seen in books, and I was like, wow, it's one of those, it's one of them. You know, it's. And it was just total full immersion. And it was just like, that, at that moment, it was a life sentence, so to speak. Oh, absolutely. And that was the same for myself. Exactly the same situation where there was no social media at the time. I think it was, um, it was Gunmark magazine, I think it was. Where yes, I saw the, where yes, I saw the, Where I saw the advert for, um, for Military Odyssey. Or it might have been like classic military vehicles or something like that. Oh, CMV. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think most of the old hands will know the old Posse forum. And that was the go-to place, the yeah. Posse uh, World War Two Forum. Yeah, I remember. Um, Is that still going? <laughs> I think it's gone into archive mode or something. Again, it's, it's, it used to be, uh, but then it was people hide behind usernames. You didn't know who people were. And you used to join groups. I, I joined a couple of groups, uh, bars back in the day. I was, but I never got to the events, unfortunately. But you used to get a newsletter every few months, you know, a written newsletter printed out and sent to you. Yeah, it was the same as membership as well. It was like all your membership forms would be mailed out to you. And like the yearly plan was mailed out to you and that. But you really got a good hope for events then, really, because you'd, you'd really look forward to events, you know, especially like things like Seven Valley. It was over two weekends, you know. Mm. And yeah, that was, that was convinced. End of June, beginning of July, and that was it, you know. And some of, the, some of the old hands who were still kicking around, you know, people like Craig Leonard, one of the dealers, he's still, he's still in the scene. You know, people I met there met lifelong friends, you know. Yeah. But then for, for myself, I kind of like I, I drifted away from the railway events and got into some of the larger events when we had the early specialties and stuff like that doing World War Two. But in a way, like like you so said, I got away from doing I got really interested in doing very specific things and not the norm. One of my earliest impressions I did was uh, the RAF units that landed by glider at Arnhem. So that really, really confused people because I'd say I turned up to British Airborne events wearing army bd and raf insignia and they're like no that's wrong you can't wear that at arnhem well actually i've actually done my research and there's these things called the light warning units and they did exist so it's i think in, the, in those times it, people were very stuck to their impressions you know it was i'm doing the parachute regiment at arnhem i am doing this and myself and rich you know rich was mainly doing glider pilot at the time and it was like a oh what are you doing that for it's, it's not mainstream it's not a soldier in fortune uh, impression in a bag type thing, you know. It's not. It, it's it's required a lot more research to look to do. Yeah, something that people always sort of do fall in that trap of because when I started doing um, airborne, it was pretty much it was either doing para or recce. I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I did airborne reconnaissance uh, with just ordinary men because that's where I first met you. When was one when I was with Joe? Because I think you was with. Field ambulance, or you was doing some bits with field ambulance, yes, then, yeah. weren't you? Um, that's with Kenny Morland, um, another another old hand of the reenacting circuit, who was actually regular parachute field ambulance. But we, yeah, we did the medical units at Arnhem, um, and it was an unknown, really an unknown display, but it, it came across really well and it was taken taken by anyone who saw it. But that's probably when I first met you when we were doing the 
large combined events at Combe, etc. Yes, it would have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would have been. Yeah, because obviously had Odyssey as well. But I don't think I saw your Odyssey that often, though. No, at the time, I don't think I had a car, so I was yeah. very much on uh, Trank's pony, so I was hoting around for lifts normally. We're in that space at one point or another, weren't we? Especially How much can you he carry enough a bag on a train? <laughs> yeah, or on a bus. <laughs> oh, was no, a six-hour bus ride right? Was a six-hour bus ride worth it? <laughs> no, it's not a brain wrapped up in his duffel yeah. bag. Yeah, yeah. 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 Some weekends, like, was oh. this really worth the six-hour bus ride? No, it weren't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's actually somebody's front garden we're displaying in. Oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, always sort of been like. Soldier, it's this massive event, and then it turns out to be like a school fate or something. Oh, we've all done them. <laughs> yeah, village, village fate in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, somebody goes, so, so what's going on today? Well, we're doing a show, you know. Yeah, <laughs> to be fair though, the what I did an event like that years and years ago with another old reenacting um hand, Tony Muggridge. Um, we did a, a small uh fate, it was a village fate in a village called Winstone Stowe. And we thought by half day, away through the day, it's like, oh, there's nothing here. But we popped into the local pub and no word of a lie, at the end of the bar was all Pete Fossil Fwait at the end of the bar. And we were like, whoa. <laughs> so we spent the rest of the afternoon talking about all brassed off and sharp and yeah. all the other good stuff. So that was, a, that was a good, that was myself and Rich and another old reenacting hand, uh, Alex Ratheath. I don't know if you remember him from years ago. Oh, Ratty, old Ratty, yeah. He had a little Diatsu van and he had always kit for many impressions in one little Diatsu van. <laughs> like Mr. Ben's wardrobe in a miniature van. Yeah, I think I did that for a fair few years, just doing the generic things. But then I started looking at doing more obscure things. Like I turned up to One Seven Valley Railway doing Malayan Emergency when nobody else was doing post-war. And just people just couldn't work, work it out in their minds what I was actually doing. Mm-hmm. But then, see, for myself, because obviously... Uh, work got in the way of fun as it always does um i kind of stopped doing a lot of the living history stuff and i went more into restoring vehicles so i had the, had the facilities of a station workshop and i bought my i had a willis oh well, it's a willis hotchkiss jeep at the time i restored that for over a couple of years so uh-huh. my first car was a willis jeep <laughs> <laughs> not many people can say that is it <laughs> no. that's always my claim to fame you know I drove yeah. a hot Willys Jeep on a provisional. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I, I remember you sort of disappeared off the circuits. I remember going to like, a few events like years ago. It's like, I ain't seen that Danny bloke about. <laughs> he's, he's disappeared. Again, it was like that time of like the Facebook hadn't really properly... Like, Facebook was abound and that, but not like it is now. And it was like, oh, right, where's uh, Danny? It's like the amount of times I'd see Carson as well, always forgetting that he was at school and, like, keeping contact, like, regular calls oh. with him. And I'm like, we'd never think to go, what, what's Danny out there? <laughs> but what I was regularly doing? treated as carer. Time, <laughs> yeah. And then, um, yeah, then obviously it's only sort of, sort of recent years, we, you know, send you, send you um, back, which is brilliant. Um, yeah. But that's what you're yeah. doing. You're hiding yourself away in, in a garage, tinkering with vehicles. Well, I left, I left the regular RAF in 2012 and kind of came back home and settled, set up house and family and all the good stuff. Um, but I've always been interested in vehicles, so I carried on restoring them, doing Land Rovers is my main passion, really. But I've still got the Wimmick and the Snatch Land Rovers at the moment. Um, but then, it, it, no word of a lie, and I'm not blowing your own trumpet for you, but it's, your, it's seeing 
yourself and Steve pushing the hobby again has got me back into it, full bore, as it were, because most of my stuff had gone into A storage, been sold off, or was sat on mannequins. You know, all my Great War stuff I, I wore for the first bit of filming that has actually been on a mannequin for five years. So <laughs> I had to strip a mannequin ready to go. <laughs> but, oh, well, thanks for that. That's, that's uh, very nice of you to say, mate. Well, it's just it's, 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 it's seeing that positivity around the hobby again, you know, and I, I think the hobby itself had kind of tread water for a few years. And now in today's world where we've got a lot more uh, passionate younger people wanting to push the hobby again, and also we've got the facilities for reproductions um, and more kit. You know, I remember when we first died, a lot of the kit was original, you know, the first reproduction denizens were coming out and people were flabbergasted, you know, a reproduction, you know, it, all the kit was nearly yeah. original. And now it's, 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 it's got to be saved rather than used. And, and that's, that's it. Yeah. So you always forget. So where Tom just sort of moves on over like the decade that we've been doing it, it's uh, yeah. It's like, mm. like reproduction rations. It's like, for years, like people got, I make a very good reproduction 24 hour ration pack. They have like a tin of tuna painted orange or something. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Stuff like a that. really bad label. Like, what's yeah. like 37 pound webbing? When I first started uh, the hobby, uh, there's a local surplus to me, and you could fill a large pack for a fiver. And when I was yeah. 16, 17, that was amazing. Get me, yeah. get me a bit of pocket money on me, paper round money. Go up there, fill a large pack for a fiver. I remember when I first joined the RAF, I got my first few proper pay packets. And I went back to that circle. I said, oh, I've come to buy a load more webbing because, I, you know, I'd had a, an inkling it's going to get hard to get hold of. And they'd burnt it for the brass. And it, we're not talking like one or two little stillages. We're talking, must have been six or seven ISO shipping containers out the back. Any yeah. listeners from Hereford will know Shepherd's Army surplus. It was just <laughs> one of those unbelievable places that was just rammed full of original kit. It was cheap. And it was full to the brim. But unfortunately, it went down the, as most people know with the surplus world, you get a surplus shop that sells surplus, but then they go down the hunting, shooting, fishing line and you lose all that nice XMOD kit and it turns into a, a hunting shop. But there's still little gems still floating around out there. You, know, you still find the kit when you need it. Yeah, you do. And like back in when we first started with those groups who are like at the pinnacle of their game were like, vast majority of them were wearing original kit because they're like, well, the reproduction stuff at the moment isn't very good. Wait, wow. It was all, you know, it, it was, it, it was, was there, it was but, there not, but not, yeah. you know, it wasn't like it is now, you know, I think, um, cause you know, we got people like Steve Kittle had um, sort of just start, he'd started yeah, making yeah, his battle yeah. dress. As soon as it was when, it was when Kittle and Dickie Knight as well, they both started doing these battle dresses. Everyone was like, Oh my God, we don't have to, we don't have to, by original or this uh, reproduction stuff, which or, is or convert forty nine pattern into yes. some kind of thirty seven slash forty thing. Yeah, absolutely. So you look back now. Now you've got people like Panther Store. You know, mm. it's like you you put a Panther Store jacket next to an original one now, and you're like, wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can't tell. It's getting. No. I mean, the collectors in the next 20, 30 years time are going to really have a struggle with some of the reproductions that are coming out now. They are. Uh, well, even now, like, uh, Steve Kiddle's stuff is being... So, trying, some people are trying to sell it on as original. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone sees it, the Henry trade name or whatever it is, and they go, nope, I know what that's Yeah, we well, know who made that. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, that, that could be... Yeah, that's a good form of flattery, I suppose. <laughs> you know, someone's trying to flog your stuff off as original. <laughs> yeah, maybe some people are buying it, strangely enough, and then you yeah. can't sell original stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know? 
Yeah, now, yeah it's, 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 it's good in a way that the people coming into the hobby now have got such a, a plethora of, you know, they can get whatever they want near enough through a few good sources. And they the can. research out there now is unbelievable, you know. When we first started, you knew started looking at obscure small unit stuff. There just wasn't the research out there. But now with the internet and the, uh, the archives, most of them being online or most of them being written about, you can put, just put your hand on anything now on the internet. You know, another good example of a unit I portrayed years ago was 30 assault units. The famous Ian Fleming created commandos. Uh, nobody had heard of it before. Nobody, everyone looked at me when I turned up to an event saying, what the heck are you wearing? You know, you've got a raw mixture of Royal Marine insignia and these thir- funny little 30s. What are they all about? Because, again, it was an obs- you know, those obscure unit stuff. But hopefully, hopefully now, I am seeing some good things on the internet and seeing people getting into the hobby, especially on th- on media, social media like TikTok and that. And they are looking at other bits and bobs out there, you know, the whole whole, whole wide spectrum of history there is. Well, yeah, um, the, yeah, the internet is a wonderful thing now with uh, regards to research. Or it would be like you'll be speaking to someone on the circuit who you think might know something about that subject, and they'll go, oh, right, you need to read the book by blah, 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 blah. And then like, you walk away with, like, 12 different books, and then you realise that each book ain't been in print for 30 years, so you got no <laughs> yeah. hope of finding the book yeah. and stuff like that. It was an absolute nightmare. Yeah, so uh, so you've done very no, so you've gone through your airborne RAF and Malayan emergency, uh, to name but a few of your little niche impressions that you've done. So, what, what are you actually doing now on the living history circuit? Now well, you're back, so back and bigger than ever back. before, back at full ball. Um, yeah. Thanks to you lot, I've now got back into doing First World War properly. <laughs> um, I'm now looking at just the final bits and bobs to finish off my pre-Great War territorial force, which we'll cover in a bit because the, ter- the territorial force is kind of one of my little babies. And the other thing that is mainly what I do uh, with another group of like-minded idiots um, is we portray Operation Herrick and Telic, which I know I'm, I'm, I'm expecting some extreme sharp inhales of breath off of some of the old reenacting fraternity who say you shouldn't portray anything after 1991. But we started doing it because we got, like, again, like-minded people came together with, with the vehicles. That's how it started off. There was various vehicle owners who owned vehicles that were used in Afghanistan and Iraq, Operation Herrick and Telic. And we kind of like wanted to do more with them. Um, we weren't happy with turning up to events and just parking up like in an Asda car park and putting a deck chair in front and sitting there all day. That just wasn't for us. And I harped back to my earlier reenacting days and went, well, we can, we've got the kit. Let's, let's kind of portray the vehicles as they were. Um, obviously, being modern era, it is a very a touchy subject for some people. Um, but we've been doing this now. I left in 2012 and kind of bought my first Land Rover, well, first uh, modern military Land Rover, must have been 2000 and uh, 15, somewhere around there. And I've portrayed, done ve- vehicles wearing my old kit, which seems strange. And to be fair, the only problems I've ever had at shows is from fellow reenactors. When I've spoken to fellow veterans of Afghanistan and Iraq, they can see where we're coming from. We, they can see that we're portraying this, not for some kind of self-gratification or self-glory, or we're doing it because they feel like they're the forgotten generation, as per Korea or Malaya, the Afghanistan and Iraq veteran, even though it officially we only pulled out last year of Afghan Kabul, 
they feel like they're a forgotten generation of veterans. Yeah, I think you've worded that quite well. Because when I, you know, similar uh, instance, when I started doing a bit of Op Banner uh, a fair few years ago, we were one of the first sort of groups to do Op Banner, but during the 70s, because we said we weren't going to do like 80s sort of thing. We were going to do um, sort of mid 70s, mainly because the bloke who run it, remember uh, Kev Lowland, who used to run JOM? Yes, um, yeah. He left, sold all his stuff, and he was like, I'm going to do Op Banner because I want to do, I want to tell, I want, basically, he wanted to sort of tell his own story, really. Um, he goes, we'll do Green Howards. I'm going to do Green Howards, and uh, I'm going to set a Sanger up. And it was a really good display. Uh, like Diorama, we actually got made up in the end, and we did it well, and we did it for the first time at War and Peace one year, and we, we stood there. We had the vehicles all lined up. And, everyone, and the, I think what it is that draws the veterans of that conflict is if you look right and you're doing it justice, then they don't have a problem with it. Because we had a lot of Northern Ireland vets from the 70s, even the 80s, 90s ones were coming up to us going, yeah, it's about time our stories started being told. And like we'd have a big billboard as well with like loads of information on it and things like this and things like that. But I think it's, as long as it's being done right, you like, you don't turn up looking like a bunch from the wild geese or something. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's uh, it de- it definitely gives you a good ground to stand on when someone turns around and go, "Why are you doing this?" Yeah, I'll say a good example of that is Hack Green um, up in Cheshire, the secret nuclear bunker that's not so secret. Um, we did. I put my my Wimmick, my Pink Panther Wimmick up there, and a chap come up to me in a wheelchair, uh, no legs, but he had his two boys with him, and he said, "Last time I sat in one of those, I was lost my legs." So I said, "Okay," I just went up to him, and chatted away, you know. You, you, you chatted after the way he said, you know, I was there at this time, I was there at that time. I said, well, do you want to sit in the wagon? And he goes, you sure? And I said, yeah, if you want to sit in my wagon, sit in my wagon. And he, he said, can I take my boys in there? And you could see he was sat in the commander's seat where he had sat and obviously it, 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 he had his incident. But he had his boys with him and he was chatting to his boys and he was picking up bits of kit and showing them and all that. And I, to me, in my mind, it brought him closure because um, he was able to explain to his boys how he'd become injured himself and he was able to go run through it and able to handle things. You know, and it's very hard to try and explain to people what you went through when you haven't got, if you've got, I, I, I do bits and bobs with it in Herefordshire. We have a Herefordshire veteran support center run by Sean Gain, a fantastic bloke, ex Mercian sniper. And I've worked with him and we call them emotional triggers and we'll have five or six items on the table and there'll be a trigger for for someone, and that, that might be able to help them explain to fellow veterans or their families about things that they went through, like the Merc cards, like a, a Israeli bandage, things that we know as common talk that that their families won't know. But again, it's that information mm. that that we need to record now because in 20, 30 years' time, people will be start asking questions. You know, oh, when did you change from Desert DPM to MTP? Oh. When was this trial stuff brought out? Because you know, we're struggling now looking at things from the Second World War, even from the 70s and 80s, we can't find this information. And I feel duty-bound now to record this down before it's lost, you know? Absolutely, mate. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Because even, like, with the World War II generation, like, you'll know yourself. Like, you'll be stood there and World War II veteran comes along, you know, now with his grandchildren or whoever is with him. Um and he'll see something that we're wearing or we start chatting with him and it was, he'll say, oh, we used to have a um, little book in our pocket. It was all done of our pay. And we go, right, that was your pay book. Here's one here. 
And then again, it will just go, it will just start blurting stuff off. Like we had it with Reg when we did our uh, interview, Reg Charles. We walked into the room uh, with a little box of uh, bits and pieces and there was a trigger, there was a trigger object for him because we had a, we had a small pack full of contents and Mm. I got the small pack out and he went, I had two of those. So how did you have two? He goes, well, the first one got ripped off my back by shrapnel. And then he's, uh, I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, he goes, I was, um, we were on like this bank and we're in, we're laying prone on this bank and um, shell went off nearby. I got pushed to the side and, um, and he goes, I've, I felt the whoosh over me back and me back being, but what the force was, it was the be, be small pack being ripped off me back. And he goes, I now have to go to the quartermaster. So oh, excuse me, I, I need a new small pack, please. What's left of it? <laughs> yeah. and, and, and his daughter was sat in the room and his daughter went, you've never told us that. He went, no, I just remembered it. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's an emotional trigger. Yeah. Yeah, it takes absolutely. you back to that. It takes you back to that moment, that time. Just again, it's something that yes, he could probably explain to his daughter better. Just by having, I think that's why I think living history and well, regimental museums and good museums in general are so important. Uh, you can be a textbook historian as much as you like, but until you've handled the kit, played with the kit, learned how it works, how it was worn, what it tasted like, if you want to go down the Steve Ration route. It adds all those levels, you know. It's a three-dimensional history. We're not, we're not. It's a very, uh, very passionate subject, shall we say? Absolutely, and I couldn't agree more with uh, what you're saying about living history because with living history, you know, you are telling the story. You know, you're you're living it to the best of your ability um, that you can physically can with what's uh, limited to you yeah so that's um yeah i just couldn't like wow i'm not even going to repeat what you just said because <laughs> i'll just be absolutely pointless because <laughs> you just you just nailed it on the head mate and i think with that i think we'll go to a quick break mate if you love history this podcast i want to help to keep history alive then join living history uk on patreon from just one pound a month your pledge enables us to support the podcast and in return, you will receive a host of benefits, including 10% discount in the Living History UK shop, private podcasts, priority access to videos, and much more. To join our Patreon and to help us to keep history alive, go to patreon.com forward slash living history UK. Welcome back to the second part of this uh, podcast. So, Danny, you, you mentioned about the work that you're doing in uh, Hereford with uh, veterans, which was uh, which I didn't even know until you mentioned it, which which is um, absolutely brilliant work, mate. Well, yeah, it, it's um, it's kind of, again, being a topic close to my heart, being a modern veteran, as we call it. I don't know if that's the way to call it. But again, it's all how comrades will only a, a comrade will only know what another comrade has gone through. And I, I picked that from. Um, of the very good TV series, uh, They Shall Not Grow Old, where there's a bit at the end of the Great War veterans talking to each other, and they say, only a veteran will truly understand what another veteran has been through. And it's again, it's giving that public voice to people or just being that somebody willing to chat to. Yeah, not a true word said, mate. I think that's absolutely commendable, what you're doing for your uh, brother veteran community. So you mentioned earlier about you finished off your territorial kit for First World War. So give us a little... Uh, give us a little little teaser about that then oh a teaser everyone likes a tease <laughs> um <laughs> well 
My particular interest being from the county of Herefordshire is the Herefordshire Regiment. Uh, now, the Herefordshire Regiment came into being in 1908 and it was formed from the, those early mixed bag units known as the Rifle Volunteers and the Herefordshire Rifle Volunteers obviously being the predecessor unit. Um, and the impression I'm working on is the territorial force, which again said came into being in 1908, um, the Herefordshire Regiment up until the outbreak of the Great War when the terrors were called up. Um, again, this is one of these areas that anyone who does early Great War, pre-Great War research, it is quite hard to find. It's probably why I like it, because I like I like to research hard things, hard things to find out about. Um, and it's added all this information, what photographs we got and mislabeled photos and trying to work out what kit was being worn, because I've kind of worked out looking at where the, the the companies came from within the county, they seem to have different kitting, which is quite interesting. Um, there's no such thing as a generic a generic look, as it were. It seems to be like, for example, the Kington Company had entrenching tools of some kind, whereas the 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 uh, the city company didn't. And Ledbury had a different type of kit bag. But again, it, it all adds those le levels into a, into your impression. I find that's quite important when you're when you're putting together a living history impression. You you look at what each unit is doing and what each cat badge is doing. What what they're doing at that time, because um, the variations are so are so <laughs> endless, really. But it's 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 finding those little things that pin it down to a particular unit. Um, Herefordshire has always been a very small area. We've we've never had a regular battalion here. We've always been a territorial county. You know, today we've 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 got a company um, in Suvla Barracks of the Rifles, but even back in the great days of the big pushes of the, of the Napoleonic era, there were still, I think, the only maximum they ever held that maximum was four battalions, and most of those were militia. So it's it's quite interesting, really. It is, especially when you're saying that each company was pretty much doing their own thing <laughs> with uh, regards to kit and stuff. So that must have been an absolute administrative nightmare at a battalion level. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's mainly down to, again, who was supporting it. The Territorial Force, as you know, was a kind of a law to itself before the Great War. But with Herefordshire being, a, a, say, one of the great landed gentries, uh, most of the officers, for good example of that, was uh, the Croft the Croft family. They owned Croft Castle, uh, which is in the north of the county. Uh, Captain Sir Arthur Croft was a well-known territorial force officer and so was his father and his father before that you know, he was lost at Gallipoli in 1915 his body was never recovered and that was the end of the Croft line after the death of his son he was, his son was actually a commando he was killed in 19 I think it's 40 or 41 but yeah it, it, it goes back I think, again it, it goes back to those uh, early uh, Napoleonic days where the local unit was supported by whoever was the lord the, the local lord so to speak yeah yeah absolutely they were definitely uh almost a law to themselves when it comes to uh kit issue you're absolutely right and i think that brings us quite nicely to one of your most recent ventures and i think you know what question i'm going to ask next now don't you danny <laughs> <laughs> so the uh Herefordshire regimental museum oh yes <laughs> well i I kind of started down volunteering down the museum um, when I first left the RAF in 2012. One of my old cadet officers was one of the assistant curators there, and I will mention him because he's a legend of a bloke, squadron leader John Scott. Um, 
Uh, he's also got me involved with the Orders and Medals Research Society, which I could talk about in a bit because I'm trying to encourage more younger members to join the, the society. But the Regimental Museum was started in the 1950s when uh, Lieutenant Colonel Tom Hill, he basically started it with a spare room in the, in the, in the TA centre and he started asking people for old kit, which is probably the best way to start a museum, fill a room with a load of old stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a good place to start, isn't it? <laughs> We've kind of, in the more recent years, taken over, updated all the display cases, because, again, it was, again, compared to other regimental museums, you know, like, for example, the Staffers or the Shropshires, who've had regular battalions, they seem to have a greater following and support base than, for example, us, who've only ever had a territorial battalion. Um, Even though we've got some, you know, Good examples in our regimental history of four generations of one family being in the regiment. It seems sadly over time with people's modern work or whatever, that the territorial, well, the army reserve as it is nowadays, hasn't got such a great following uh, compared to older days. For example, my own family were territorials after they finished, um, well, my great-great-grandfather, Thomas uh, Reese. He started off in the Territorial Army in 1924 in the Army Service Corps bakery section attached to the Herefordshire Regiment. At the outbreak of war, he went with the Herefordshire Regiment and was later transferred to the Army Catering Corps. But at the end of the Second World War in 1945, him and my grandfather both signed up with the Territorials again, even though they had, they had to for a couple of years because of the Reservists Act. But they carried on. And my gra- great-grandfather uh, finally retired from the TA in the early 1960s. At that point, he'd done over like 38 years in the TA he was well known and he always refused promotion. He got to sergeant and sat there. He was quite happy. <laughs> wow, that's but, uh, that's quite a career in the territory. So he must have had more clasp than ribbon on his long service medal then. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. uh, the efficiency medal territorial with two clasps is all he ever got. Um, because he got he was a bit of a well, he was regimental boxer as well at one point. So I think I got him in trouble a couple of times as well. Oh, he was a bit of a um, lad then. <laughs> a bit of a yes. <laughs> well, cook, he was cookhouse sergeant, so you you always made friends with him. He was the main one. If you want an extra slice of uh, bread or something, uh, but yeah, I think territorial units are very much underlooked, and it's one thing I'm I'm trying to drive, especially with my Great War stuff and the pre-Great War stuff, is try trying to remember the territorials because it was as much as we we think of the Great War of the great callings up of fourteen and fifteen, and you know, and the conscript obviously the conscript army. People seem to forget that there was a territorial force, you know. The National Reserve, as the Reserve Army, as it were, just it, we were called up and all were part-time soldiers, and it, it seems to be it seems to have been kind of forgotten from history, you know. Yeah, I think I think you're right because it's the same with the Second War as well. I think they've also been forgotten. Well, it's both wars really. They've been completely forgotten about because uh, you know you can look at the BAF in 1940, the Fourth Ox and Bucks pretty much got wiped out <laughs> during the yeah. uh, Dunkirk campaign at um, Cassel. They did, um, but no one really remembers it. All, all, everyone just remembers like you know, the second battalion because they became airborne. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, it's, 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 yeah, it's, that's one thing that's, we're trying to do with the regimental museum. You know, we're based in the Army Reserve Centre in Suvla Barracks in in Hereford, and we're open by appointment only. And obviously, at the moment, with with, with COVID floating around, we've been closed. And our last visitor, I think, our last, we looked at the books, and the last visitor was late twenty nineteen. You know, we've been. Two years since we've had a member of the public walk through the door is quite a sad, sad occasion, really. But in a way, we're quite lucky compared to other regimental museums. We are totally 
volunteer run. We're totally volunteer funded. And very luckily, because we occupy a space in the Army Reserve Centre, we have no overheads. Whereas compared to people like the Shropshire's Museum, who have massive overheads, and I think it's the Shropshire's Regimental Museum, um, they, they obviously rent the castle off the council, but they had a, a funding slash after the last defence review. They lost something like £24,000 funding a year. That's why I think it's really important for people to get on these schemes like Patreon and join the Friends of Museums. If you really love a regiment or really interested, donating £20 a year is, is, is barely a lunch in a good restaurant. But you could be providing much-needed support for these museums because once they're gone, they're gone at the end of the day. Sadly, for example, the Durham Light Infantry Museum, fantastic collection, fantastic museum, but sadly, it's now been spread near enough to the four winds. It has, and especially during the lockdown as well, where some of these museums have closed, or even they've had to sell items of their collection as well. I know uh, of one museum, they ended up having to sell um, a load of medals. Most of them have all got like gallantry awards. That's what sells, isn't it? Because just trying to sell off normal campaign medals isn't um, what the collectors are looking for. But uh, these are like military medals, DSL, or... Uh, groups of with their campaign medals just to try and generate that re revenue that they've lost through other people not visiting or government cuts because they just can't make they just can't uh, survive at the moment so that's something people really do need to do is get to those local museums and and support them well yeah it's, it's, it's definitely important um my other great interest is being a medal collector i collect and research orders and medals um, being a member of the Orders and Medals Research Society, uh, which is a very uh, quite a, well old society, it's been going around since since the since the first medals were awarded for Waterloo. There's always been a collector for them. Um, yeah, that has. <laughs> um, and the research as well that goes into them. You know, it, I know people have very got very different views about medals and where they should be and who should own them. Um, my own opinion is I'm a collector. I collect. Uh, the 1st Battalion, the Herefords, I collect the 4th and 10th Battalion, the Shropshires. Notice all those three units of territorials. Um, I also collect the KSLI in Korea, and I collect the RAF in Afghanistan, which is which people think is quite strange, but I'm, I've actually recently bought medals off fellow comrades who no longer want them. Now, a lot of people were saying, oh, that you shouldn't do that. The medals belong to the recipients and all that, and all with the families. And so, But sometimes the collector or the researcher of these medals can show more interest than the family would ever do. I, I recently bought, I, I will hold my hand up, I recently bought an operational service medal Afghanistan to a fellow member of the RAF, who I know served out there at the same time. And I, I said, you sure you want me to sell this to me? Oh, if you want to buy it back at any time, you can buy it back for the price I paid for. But he, I, he's not interested in it anymore. His family aren't interested. And as he said to me, I put that in the past now. But then I've kept that that moment of his history alive in my collection, so to speak. Yeah, I see exactly where you're coming from with it. I held a medal group in my collection. The family found out that I had it, and they they accused me of taking. Even though I bought it, I bought it at luncheon auction house, and they accused me of stealing it. I was holding stolen goods, and I turned around to them and said, "Right, well, can you provide me a crime number so I can." You know, obviously, I can go to the auction house and get my money back. So we're not talking about a couple of quid here. It was no, a no. hundred pounds. Yeah. Um, 
And I said, have you got a crime number for it? And they turned around and said, no, we haven't got a crime number. Give us it back right now. And I was, in the end, I just took it in a different bag and chucked it in the post because I, I couldn't be dealing with the emotional distress I was being put through. Mm. You know, I had a similar thing with uh, my great uncle's Malaya medal. Um, he gave me his medal when I was eight or nine, I think I was, just for that reason. Because, he, you know, he, you know he, it, that's been Nan's brother. So it's no, he's not a name descendant, if you know what I mean. Uh, so it's be because uh, my Nan's brother. But he, he, he gave me his Malaya medal because um, he knew that my two cousins weren't really that interested. So he goes, uh, you know, you, you're, I know you're interested and you'll look after this when I'm not here anymore. So, which I've done. So that's, um, that's uh, kept away in a box. And mm. uh, I remember when he died, was, it must be four, six years ago now. And we're at the funeral down in London. And uh, it was actually, my cousin Paul was one of his lads. Um, actually, I can't remember if it was Paul or Alan, actually. It was one of the two, one of, the, one of my two cousins. Um, said to me, said, oh, we were... Um, go through some bits and pieces and we, we were talking about his Malaya medal and because uh, he got a medal when he was in the army and he went, yeah, that's right he got his Malaya medal and I was like we, we can't find it anywhere because we remember this medal because we can remember seeing it as kids but we don't know where it is and it's like well it shows how much attention you've been paying yeah. doesn't it he gave it to me when I was 10 or 8 or whatever I was and I went oh right so you got it. I went yeah yeah I, 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 he gave he gave it to me but he says, if you want it back you can have it no, because yeah, you know, he's your dad at the end of the day. So if you if you want to be like, no, 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 no. If he's giving it, if he's giving it to you, he, he there's a reason why he's giving it to you. So, uh, but look, look, we're just glad that we know where it is now, because we just thought it might have just got thrown out by accident or something. Good example I'd like to raise any to people, especially about medals, is recently. Well, recently, when we could, when we could open to the public, the Herefordshire Regimental Museum. We held a special event for the 100th anniversary of the, the battalion landing at Suvla Bay. Now, Suvla Bay was part of that, the damned Dardanelles, as everyone knows it as, the, the fated landings uh, at Gallipoli. But it's not all an Australian affair. There were Brits there as well. And the Herefords, it was their first blooding of the regiment, so to speak. We got some fantastic letters. We got, for example, one letter that was written on the ship over, and it was basically... They, the last time the, the regiment had been overseas, well, the regiment had never been overseas, it was territorial force, but they'd been on annual camp to the Isle of Wight in about 1910, 1911, and people said, oh, it's just like going to the Isle of Wight, but an awful lot longer um, <laughs> on the boat. Um, but <laughs> that's the last time they'd been overseas. But um, we did a, a special thing in 2015 where we tried to get as many members of the regiment's medals back together. And... To take into consideration, 1,200 men of the battalion landed in the August of 1915. By the time they evacuated the battalion in the December, there was only about 70 men left standing who were fit for roll call out of 1,200. It's that's, just that's a staggering amount, isn't it? <laughs> and that's just, just not just through hostile, hostile action, that's through malaria, dysentery. Uh, two men, there's a, there's a rumour that two men were lost due to them drinking SRD rum during the middle of the day, but we'll see about that. I don't know if that, that's a rumour story, as it were, mm. um, but shows, shows the desperation of the, the, the peninsula. But no, to go back to the uh, the medals, we actually got hold of all the, the museum's collections, our own personal collections, and medals still held by the family, and we put on display. It, it was in the end, we wanted to get 100 groups together. In the end, we had something like 130 groups together of 
men of the first battalion in the Herefordshire Regiment who landed in Glippin, all these men, or near enough all of them, were pre-war territorial force. They would have all known each other. A good example is the Gag family. Um, well, it's two families, really. The Gags, it was him and his sons, the Faulkner family. I have his medals from the museum currently for mounting at home. Um, the, the Faulkner family was the father and three sons. The father was the company sergeant major. His sons were the three sergeants. Company Sergeant Major Faulkner was one of the old men of the regiment. He'd been awarded his Territorial Force Long Service Medal. So he'd already done 20 years before the formation of the Territorial Force in 1908. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, he was one of the old, 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 old hands of the regiment. But he was lost at Gallipoli. Um, his sons saw him go down. Um, the oldest son went to try and find him. Couldn't find the body. And we have... In, in the museum collection, not just the father's medals, um, we have the letter written by the son to his mother saying that they couldn't find his dad's body. He's been out hunting for him. I can't find dad. I can't find dad's body. You know, how, could, how could a son write that to his own mother trying to find, saying, I can't find dad? That, that, was, uh, that would have been the hardest letter he's ever had to write in his life, I think. Yeah, you know, and we you now people think of it as just a telegram through the front door, but this was yeah. real people, you know, especially when you know the oldest oldest son there would have been well, they were all sergeants in, in different companies, so they'd have had their own duties, and then and then also they're worried about the father as well. But then there was a knock on effect. You know, we've all seen um, all the King's Men, the famous David Jason film, starring the famous Taff Gillingham. Yeah, um, you know, the the loss of the Sandigan Company, the Herefords are quite. Similar, you know, for example, we lost uh, one of our uh, main men, Captain Sir Arthur Croft. You know, when he when he died, that was most of the estate gone, you know, and yeah. it's, people think of the, the obviously the great actions of 14 on in France, you know, the great, great families and great estates going down. But also men in the ranks <laughs> like like the Faulkner family, father and three sons who were senior NCOs in the regiment. Yeah, and that's one of the things people forget about the First World War is is they think, oh, it's the Powell's battalions. They're the ones that, you know, a whole factory floor got wiped out because uh, this whole Powell's battalion were in the same, uh, these boats from this factory all in the same company and the whole company got wiped. Well, this was already happening back in 14 and 15 with the territorials. What, where do you think these territorial soldiers came from? They didn't come from the Letts and Bretts of the county. They came from, their company was in the town that they came from. So if that company got wiped out, that's all the men from that town gone. You know, that's mm. something they, a lot of people do forget. They think it was all, all about the Powell's battalions when these disasters happened. But like I said it was, all, it was already happening. It was happening with the territorials. I think the first territorials on the Western Front was, was it late 14, October, November 14? I sure the. Yes, it I, was about I, yeah, October time they started coming over. Yeah. So it's, it's quite interesting. Again, it's, it's that multifaceted history, as I call it, you know. And hopefully the new generations coming into living history and, and portraying things will look at and go, blimey, there's so much history out there. If you just go out there and look for it and read read something other than an Offspray book, you will find that history out there. Oh, you definitely will. And once you start talking to the right people as well, when you start looking into these things, ah, this person might know, you know, there's, especially in our community, there is a plethora of people willing to help you all you got to do is ask them because there's a lot of people that will point you in the right direction well exactly yeah I, i'm quite happy to bore anyone to death 
about orders and medals and the correct ribbons you should be wearing for an impression that you're portraying, you know. It, it, please do not wear World War II campaign stars during the middle of World War II. It didn't happen. As much as you want to bulk out what's on your chest, sometimes less is more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I think that's uh, all we've got time for for this uh, podcast, unfortunately, because I, I could sit here and talk to you all day, Danny, to be quite honest with you. <laughs> Normally, normally over something that's tall and cold as well. Yeah, usually, yeah, yeah. But thanks, thanks for taking the time out of your day, mate, and um, coming to join us on the podcast and chat to a little bit about your your living history career and your current projects that you're involved in. And um, you know, with the vet, with the veterans work that you're doing and the museum work, keep it up, mate, because it's uh, absolutely it's a worthy cause, really is. Well, thank you, thank you for having me, and I'm, I'm just so so chuffed that this is the, the Living History UK project is getting such wind underneath it, and it's getting to such great heights now. And I, I do really feel if people are listening and joining in with the, the social media side of things and listening to the podcast, this this project is going to have such great legs to it. And, and but please do get out there, support not just Living History UK, but support your local regimental museums, support societies like the Orders and Medals Research Society, the OMRS, because the information is out there and the people are willing to share it. So, so well, thank you again uh, for inv- inviting me along. I'm, I'm still very humbled that you've asked to do an interview. It's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Absolute pleasure. Um, if you've liked what you've heard on this uh, podcast, there is links below connected to all the subjects that we've spoken about. And uh, so until next time, stay safe and see you soon. Bye bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.